After the story of Samson in the Bible, I think the best place to turn to is Homer's Odyssey. And the reason I say this is because for all of the things that are enchanting to us, that call to us about the biblical Samson, his greatness of strength, the one thing that we never saw with Samson was any kind of relationship with friends. We never saw where Samson had friends. And I can't help but wonder that if Samson had friends, he would have had people, close people in his life that he respected and that respected him, that could have helped him to self-correct, that could have helped him to see how he was going wrong. That's one of the biggest problems with greatness is that great men like Samson do in fact find it very difficult to make true friends because they're simply so much greater than everyone else. It's hard to have things in common with people that you're simply so much superior to. And the emphasis here, our emphasis, is not simply on having friends, but on having true friends. And so it's more than just having enough in common with other people. You have to have something in common with them that is very significant to you. And in this case, in Samson's case, it would be greatness. It's going to turn out that finding that, establishing those bonds, bonds of greatness, integrity, honor between men, is very difficult. There are many reasons for why we have our saying that it's lonely at the top, but certainly one of the important reasons why is that it's just hard to find people, again, to emphasize that you have these very strong, significant bonds with, bonds of honor, integrity. But luckily for us, and probably precisely because it's so difficult, it's a very common theme in the great books. And so we're going to see this come up again and again. So that's what we're going to be looking into here. And we're going to find it with Telemachus. And more than that, we're also going to find the relationship between Telemachus and his father on the one hand, but also the divine on the other. So again, something we didn't get in the story of Samson, but we're going to get it here. We're not going to be going through the whole text, but we're certainly going to be going through the first four books. And the translation that I've chosen for us is the Fagel's translation. And the reason for that is Fagel's is pretty solid to get a hold of. It's not too difficult. It's also a good translation. So while on occasion I might change the translation because it could be a little bit better, it's going to be rather rare. So with all of that said, let's just go ahead and begin. Homer opens with the following. He says, Sing to me of the man, Muse, the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course, once he had plundered the hollow heights of Troy. Many cities of men he saw and learned their minds. Many pains he suffered, hard trick on the open sea, fighting to save his life and bring his comrades home. But he could not save them from disaster, as hard as he strove. The recklessness of their own ways destroyed them all, the blind fools. They devoured the cattle of the sun, and the sun god blotted out the day of their return. Launch out on his story, muse, daughter of Zeus. Start from where you will. Sing for our time, too. Okay, an awful lot has just been said right there, so let's take a look at it more closely. This is Homer's introduction to the text of the Odyssey. And what he does in beginning is he invokes the muse. He wants the muse, the daughter of Zeus, to speak through him. And specifically what he asks is for the muse to provide the story of Odysseus. And he tells us quite a bit about Odysseus right there. He says, after Troy, what Odysseus has done is he's been learning the minds of men, traveling to many cities, and he's thrown off course time and time again. He says he's suffering as he's trying to get home. He wants to return home. And amid these adventures, we could say, of him being thrown off course and learning the minds of men through the traveling to various cities, he encounters great danger. And so he's constantly trying to save himself, but also his men. And Homer tells us something very important about his men. Odysseus is unable to save them because they do something that is impious. They do something forbidden by the gods. 
And so we see right away a very good connection between this story and the previous story of Samson. Odysseus's men have transgressed the boundaries of what is allowed for man, and so the gods are not going to provide them their homecoming. They're going to die. And it's at that point that Homer says, start wherever you want to, muse, but tell us this story. So where the muse begins is going to be very important, and we're going to see that immediately. But also, notice that last line. Homer says, sing for our time too. In other words, this account of Odysseus is relevant for us. Homer is specifically saying, Muse, tell us this story of Odysseus for our time. Now, the reason that I say that a lot had been said right there is because those are only 12 lines. And keep in mind all that we've learned. The very important thing about Odysseus is that he seeks to learn the minds of men in his travels through various cities. It's very important for him to know what other people think how they think, what they believe in. And also, he's unable to save his men because, again, they have engaged in an act of impiety that nothing mortal can save them from. Certainly not Odysseus. And Odysseus is known as being the most thoughtful, the most cunning, the most subtle of all the Greeks. And not even he can save them. And lastly, Homer says, begin where you want to, muse, anywhere that you want to, and tell us his story for our time. So where the muse is about to begin is going to be very important. And so continuing, this is what the muse says. And again, she's speaking through Homer. She says, by now, all the survivors, all who avoided headlong death, were safe at home, escaped the wars and waves. But one man alone, his heart set on his wife and his return. Calypso, the bewitching nymph, the lustrous goddess, held him back, deep in her caverns, craving him for a husband. But then, when the wheeling seasons brought the year around, that year spun out by the gods, when he, Odysseus, should reach his home, Ithaca, though not even there would he be free of trials, even among his loved ones. Then every god took pity, all except Poseidon. He raged on, in other words, Poseidon raged on, seething against the great Odysseus till he reached his native land. Okay, so again, an enormous amount has been said there, so let's look at it very closely. The key here, the most important thing that I always want young students to learn, is that reading is not a kind of assembly line. You don't want to try to just plow through something. These books have lasted for millennia precisely because they're so deep, and so the onus is upon us to be very thoughtful, subtle readers, to go very slowly, to learn how to look at less and see so much more. I like to tell people that that's really what the meaning of education is. The meaning of education is to learn how to look at less and see more. And that really does have to be learned because ours is an age of distraction. Ours is a time in which when people are not turning to things like YouTube or just Cliff Notes versions of books, they're under the impression that you can read very quickly. You see this, for instance, in course descriptions in college, where they have this long list of books that are going to be read during the semester. And any one of those books probably should be an entire seminar, if they're great books, that is. So a course in philosophy on ethics that has a list of things like Aristotle's ethics, Kant's ethics, all the way down to the postmoderns, that's really a trivial course. Because you're going to be reading so quickly, you're going to miss the subtleties. And so that's precisely what I'm trying to correct for here teaching young people how to look at less and see more. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at those last 12 lines that we just read through, like the first 12 lines. That's really how you read books. 
going very slowly, piece by piece, to understand the full puzzle for all of its depth that we're putting together here. The muse has begun her story of Odysseus that Homer asked about by pointing out that everyone has already returned from Troy except for one person, Odysseus. And the reason he's not reached home is because a bewitching nymph, Calypso, has held him back. She wants him as a husband. And she's held him back for so long that when the year turns in which the gods have fated that Odysseus should return, he's not returned yet. Now, implied there is something very, very important. The gods have a plan. They have a larger plan in which mortals play a part. It's pre-ordered, pre-ordained, but it's gone awry. The sea nymph, Calypso, has interfered with it, apparently through no fault of Odysseus's own. And that's going to be important for what we're about to find out. But the muse also points out that even once Odysseus does get home, he's not going to be free of his trials, of his struggles. But nonetheless, because Odysseus has not reached home in the year that the gods have fated for him to be home, they all take pity on him. Except for Poseidon, Odysseus has done something, or he's been complicit in something, that has greatly angered Poseidon. Poseidon rages against Odysseus. Continuing, the muse says the following. She says, but now Poseidon had gone to visit the Ethiopians worlds away. Ethiopians offer the farthest limits of mankind. A people split in two. One part where the sun god sets, and part where the sun god rises. There, Poseidon went to receive an offering, bulls and rams by the hundred. Far away, at the feast, the sea lord sat and took his pleasure. But the other gods, at home in Olympian Zeus's halls, met for full assembly, and among them now, the father of men and gods was first to speak, sorely troubled, remembering handsome Aegisthus, the man Agamemnon's son, renowned Orestes, killed. So Orestes is Agamemnon's son. Recalling Aegisthus, Zeus harangued the immortal powers. And now the muse speaks for Zeus. She says, Ah, how shameless way these mortals blame the gods. From us alone, they say, come all their miseries. Yes, but they themselves, with their own reckless ways, compound their pains beyond their proper share. Look at Aegisthus now. Above and beyond his share, he stole Atreides' wife. That's Agamemnon's wife. He murdered the warlord coming home from Troy, though he knew it meant his own total ruin. Far in advance, we told him so ourselves, dispatching the guide, the giant killer, Hermes. Don't murder the man, Hermes said. Don't court his wife. Beware, revenge will come from Orestes, Agamemnon's son, on the day that he comes of age and longs for his native land. So Hermes warned, with all the goodwill in the world, but would Aegisthus's hardened heart give way? Now he pays the price, all at a single stroke. Okay, so there's a lot there, and it relates to so much that has already been said in the previous 24 lines or so. So let's take a look at it meticulously. Homer has begun by asking the muse to begin wherever she sees fitting. The muse begins by recounting how it is that Odysseus has not returned home like everybody else because he's being held back by one of the gods, a sea nymph, Calypso, and also that Poseidon rages against Odysseus for some reason. We don't know what that reason is yet. But while Poseidon is off with the Ethiopians accepting a gift, all of the gods assemble in Olympus within the halls of Zeus, and the first one to speak is Zeus himself. And what Zeus does is he opens by lamenting how it is that man blames the gods for all of their suffering. And Zeus flatly says, yes, that's true. However, 
man extends that suffering beyond what we have portioned for him in the larger scheme of things. And they extend that by their recklessness. And remember, Homer has opened up the entire text by wanting to hear about the homecoming of Odysseus. Zeus holds up as a case in point a homecoming to exemplify man's poor understanding of man's own relationship to the divine. And this example is none other than a failed homecoming from Troy. What has happened is that while Agamemnon was off at Troy, this person, Aegisthus, who Zeus goes out of his way to say is handsome, has seduced Agamemnon's wife. And Zeus says that the gods gave Aegisthus plenty of warning in advance to not do this. They sent Hermes to tell him, do not do this. It's beyond your lot. In other words, there are hierarchies among men in the plan according to the gods for man. And Aegisthus, presumably because of his beauty, has transgressed those hierarchies. He sought more than is provided for him. He sought more than his lot. He sought the king's wife. And so certainly Aegisthus is to blame for his own suffering. But recall what was also said about Odysseus being held back from his homecoming. Odysseus suffered not because of something that was said that he did, but because of one of the gods themselves, Calypso. So what Zeus has just said is problematic in the case of Odysseus. And so what we have here in these opening passages, where the muse has decided to begin, is none other than an account of the relationship that man has with the divine and how man understands that relationship. And in many cases, if not all cases, how man misunderstands that relationship and extends their own suffering. Now, the greatness of the Odyssey is that it's going to turn out that it's not quite Calypso's fault that Odysseus is being held back. Odysseus is going to be very complicit in his own suffering, but that's for a different discussion. At least what we have right here in the opening is really a kind of cosmological account of everything. You have, on the one hand, the gods, and then you have the heroes among men, on the other hand, and you have why it is that they suffer. You have the hierarchies among men. And you also have an account that's problematic about that relationship. The recklessness of man extends his own suffering, and man lacks a certain kind of self-knowledge to see that he's responsible for it and lashes out and blames the gods. So you see that there's a kind of doubling down on hubris on the part of man. And Zeus is lamenting this. And so this is all that comes tumbling out of just these first few opening passages, which is to say everything in the life of man. And we can even put a finer touch on it, because man's proper relationship to the divine is that which we call the just. Similarly, look at what is happening here. Odysseus is being delayed because of Calypso. She wants him as her husband. It's possible that Poseidon has something to do with his delay as well, but we're not told anything about that at this point. All we know is that Calypso holds him back because she wants him as a husband. Similarly, the example that Zeus holds up of Aegisthus is that Aegisthus wants Agamemnon's wife, and we're told that Aegisthus is himself handsome or beautiful. So what we have in this dynamic here is the way in which justice is understood and how that which we call the beautiful impinges upon that understanding of justice and the proper understanding of man and his relationship to the divine and man and his relationship to other men we could call the good. And so just in these opening passages, what we have is the interrelationship and the tension involved in these three fundamental concepts, the beautiful, the good, and the just. 
And now what's going to happen is that Athena is going to chime in. We're going to find out that there's even more things going on than just the problems that Zeus is having concerning men and the relationship to the divine. With regard to the just, what we've seen so far is the relationship between man and the divine. We could call that element of justice piety. What Athena is going to introduce is a deeper level of justice as it pertains to the divine itself. In other words, man's understanding of divine justice simply. And let me explain what I mean by that. We ourselves presume that we understand what, in fact, justice is, what constitutes justice. Athena's entry here to what Zeus has broached is going to provide a way in which to question our understanding of justice, the kind of justice that we expect from the divine. What Athena does is she shows that it's more complicated than we might otherwise simply presume. And so just jumping right into it, what she says is the following. And sparkling-eyed Athena drove the matter home. Father, son of Kronos, our high and mighty king, surely he goes down to a death he earned in full. Let them all die so, all who do such things. Now she's talking about Aegisthus. So Athena has no mercy, no sympathy whatsoever for Aegisthus. And to put an even finer point on it, Athena has no sympathy, no mercy for Aegisthus the way that Zeus seems to have. And from there, she immediately pivots to Odysseus. She says, But my heart breaks for Odysseus, that seasoned veteran cursed by fate so long. Far from his loved ones still, he suffers torments off on a wave-washed island rising at the center of the seas, a dark wooded island, and there a goddess makes her home, a daughter of Atlas, wicked titan who sounds the deep in all its depths, whose shoulders lift on high the colossal pillars thrusting earth and sky apart. Atlas's daughter, it is, who holds Odysseus captive. Luckless man, despite his tears, forever trying to spellbind his heart with seductive words and wipe all thought of Ithaca from his mind. But he, straining for no more than a glimpse of hearth smoke drifting up from his own land, Odysseus longs to die. Okay, so an enormous amount has been said there. So again, Let's take a very, very close look at it and make sure that we understand it very meticulously. The first thing that stands out, and this is why I'm suggesting that her entry here introduces a deeper level of our understanding of the just. What she shows is that the justice Zeus has for one person is injustice according to how she sees it. And she holds up Odysseus as an example, as the example. So Zeus was focused on the wrong man, according to Athena. He should be focused on Odysseus and precisely what is holding Odysseus from his homecoming. Because as she says, Calypso is flatly holding him captive. And that's that deeper element of what we would otherwise think of as justice. The differences among men and the way that they deserve or what they've earned from the divine precisely because of those differences the difference, of course, in this case, being Odysseus's greatness, according to Athena, versus the scandalous quality of Aegisthus. And so these scales of justice are not blind. That's the most important thing to recognize here. Divine justice is not supposed to be blind. And let's make sure we understand, when we say divine justice, we always mean the highest form, the most pure or the most perfect understanding of justice. And the most perfect form of justice, according to Athena, absolutely takes into account that hierarchy among men. 
precisely what Zeus had not done, or at least he's not focused upon that. But that's just for starters. That's our first cut. So let's re-examine this passage even more carefully. 